Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Arsenal dropped two more points in their battle to lift the Premier League as Manchester City close in with another comfortable victory. We'll talk about Aston Villa's resurgence under Unai Emery. Could they make it into the top four? Brighton put in a stunning performance at Chelsea. Who, though, will their next manager be? We'll talk about Dean Smith's first game in charge of Leicester and all of the big stories at the bottom with huge wins for Bournemouth, Crystal Palace and Wolves. This is The Game. Hello again, welcome back to The Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wisencroft, alongside Alison Rudd, Tom Roddy and Gregor Robertson, who are alongside me all together in a studio in London like magic to react to what was once again an eventful weekend of football with plenty of storylines. We're going to start Throughout this podcast, I think I'm going to go from top of the table towards the bottom of the table, which means Chelsea fans, you'll have to wait. Bottom of the table, loads of stories there, but that will be towards the end of the podcast. And Man City, I've thrown you in with Leicester, so you'll have to wait as well. But um, we have to begin, I think, with events at the London Stadium. Arsenal missing a penalty through Bukayo Saka. They also threw away a two-goal lead dropping points in the hunt for the Premier League title. It finished West Ham 2, Arsenal 2. A close-range finish from Gabriel Jesus, Martin Erdegaard volley had put Arsenal 2 up inside 10 minutes. They looked like they were cruising, but just like at Anfield last Sunday, uh, they gave away the two-goal lead, and it means they dropped valuable points in the battle with Manchester City. So the question really when it comes to Arsenal is, are they cracking? Is this the moment? Is this it? Is this what everyone has been waiting for? Two games in a row, four points dropped. Not what they wanted. I love the headline of for the game because it was at West Ham. They 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 went with you know forever forever losing two nil leads. Um, not blowing bubbles. I think the problem with Arsenal is not that they're cracking, that they don't know quite what vibe to channel at this point in the season. So. It wouldn't surprise me if for much of the season, Arteta has been reminding the team that they're ahead of schedule. No one's really expecting them to win the title. This is a good basis to grow from. If something wonderful happens, it happens. But now it's becoming a real thing. They're so almost overcompensating. They should be going into a real sort of hyper phase of giving it their all and trying really hard not to be overconfident. And I think they're scared that that is at odds with what they've been for the rest of the earlier part of the season. So they've they've overcompensated in that they're being a bit too relaxed. 
And I don't think that's arrogance or taking anything for granted. I just think it's navigating how to do it at this point. They're not used to it. Most of those players don't know what you're supposed to do in this situation. And I just think they've they've judged it incorrectly. So I don't think they're cracking as in... Cracking implies the pressure's got to them and they can't play properly anymore. That clearly can't be true because they played so well for half an hour against West Ham and they played so well for half an hour against Liverpool. So they know how to play football still and impose themselves on a game really quickly, which is a talent in itself. One big reason why they're in this situation where they could win the title. But I think they're they're un- unable to the way that City know how uh, pr- proven you can switch off and still be uh, effective. They don't know how to do that. So I don't think it's called cracking. I just think it's not knowing. I just think they're not prepared to bore us, actually, Arsenal, because I think Arteta's made them such a process-driven football team. You know, it, it's all about style. And you see a couple of decisions made in that game where you're thinking, do you know what? Yeah, they're, they're playing the game the way that the manager wants them to and the way that's brought them so much success this season. But they've got a two-goal lead. And suddenly they're not playing like a team who... It's just not in their mind. It's not in their DNA currently to make a game ugly, to make a game scrappy, to just kill it, make it dull. You've got the two-goal lead. Keep that secure. That That's not yet. I don't think he wants them to do that. No, I know he doesn't want them to do that. That's my point. It's just not in their psyche at the moment to do that. And they haven't reverted. It's almost like they haven't realised that there is a different way. You know, it's all good. Play the beautiful thing. But once you've got the, the, the beautiful style of football, once you've got the two-goal lead, you can become a different football team. And you can see out a game in a different way, and they haven't yet developed that. I don't think. I think he does, he wants them not to take their foot off the gas. I think he, he alluded to as much in his comments as well, saying start passing the ball for passing sake rather than being direct, being attack minded, playing still playing on the front foot, doing the thing that they do best. So you've got a perfectly valid argument. There's different ways to sort of see your games, but as Alison's saying, they don't know how to do that. And as Arteta is saying, they're better doing the thing that they do so well and keep doing it. I think that's the problem. I think we're not seeing them cracking. I think we're seeing tension. And as as Alison is saying, they don't really know. Even you know, they go too up early and they don't have the kind of I don't know. There's not, there's not the same drive to continue to keep to get the third and the fourth. There's a temptation to draw parallels between the two games because of the result losing two goal leads for two games running but and it was the I think it was only the fifth time in Premier League history that's happened which when you think it's a team fighting for the title would make you assume that they are cracking a little bit but I think they're they're such different games and the one at West Ham was so much more damaging because they're polar opposites, aren't they? Anfield and, and the London Stadium, absolute opposites. You you expect that sort of thing to happen at Anfield. You never expect it to happen really at the London Stadium. And you could kind of see that in what Arteta said afterwards. It, it was too comfortable was one of the things mm. he, he, he said. And I, it struck me that it was a really honest assessment. And, and it, that's what we want for us but I didn't think he protected the players too much I don't think you would see that from Guardiola at this point of the season and you know there was that period where Guardiola was talking about wanting to see my team I don't recognise my team and all that mattered was how they how they looked how they played it was the process and and that was at a stage of the season where 
he was talking about the Premier League not really mattering too much. But they've now, they, this really is his team. And, and the, the big difference is kind of what you were talking about, Gregor, is that they tend to have these last-minute winners Arsenal quite often, whereas City have been, I think it's the Paul Hurst wrote in his piece this morning that it was the uh, the first time in Guardiola's reign that they've scored three goals in, in six consecutive games. I mean, that shows what Arsenal are up against. It's... And that's in the back of their mind too, surely. Yeah. It's got to be now. We yeah. keep, we've been talking about all season. Are they coming? Are they coming? Yeah. My God, are they coming? Yeah. So, you know, you, it's more important than ever that's to see the main game. thing is that they are coming rather than... There, there will be a temptation to say they're cracking and they're they're, they're going to go into meltdown and draw parallels to, to last season. But in 21 of the... They're, they're, they're probably going to get 90 points Arsenal, aren't they? Probably. And in 21 of the last... 30 seasons that would win you the title so they're not I don't think they are collapsing I think they miss Libra I miss they I think they miss Sinchenko loads and that squad doesn't have the depth that a lot of these teams at the top especially Man City have got so uh, we're we're not going to use the phrase bottling at any point in time when it comes to Arsenal no No. but if if, as Tom said even if they get 90 plus points we are in a different reality now like it just hammers home how Relentless city have become, and it's not. It's not by no means over. I just say it's tension. There's, there's some tension. At this point in the season, that's what you're going to see. And part of that is because they know the city are coming. Part of it is about changing personnel. They've got you know defense doesn't look quite as strong. And even before then, Saliba and Gabriel were both starting to have a little kind of little wobbly period. So I think all those things combined. We're just going to see them. It's not cracking, but like the pressure is starting to tell a little bit. Was there pressure in the penalty miss? Do you think? Uh, there's always pressure on penalties. They were two one up. I know it sounds weird because he scored a load of them, but I, I'm not a big, I'm not a big fan of Saka on penalties. He's too young. Still, I don't, no, but I don't, well, I just don't think he's a natural. Actually, I think we're seeing more and more that even the, the penalty takers with you know the best technique, you know, some of the stuttering run ups and deceiving the keeper and the players that even seem the most calm under that situation still aren't great penalty takers. I do think we were sport for a period of time where, you know, a player got the ball you thought was going in the back of the net. Even Haaland, you know, it went right in the corner at the weekend and I thought, was that a good penalty? Could have easily hit the post, could have easily gone wide. It looks like, in the end, the perfect penalty. You know, for me, he's just one of those kids that wants to score goals so from the age of about five he was probably like I'm on penalties doesn't matter if I'm good at them or not I'm getting as many goals as I can but I, I don't see Saka as a natural penalty taker good penalty taker but not a natural and I do think there's a difference in that situation I'd love to say it was a blunder that let West Ham back into the game from party it was like yes and no if you watch the situation if the ball goes into Kieran Tierney and I think all of his teammates point down the channel this is what I mean about the difference in... It was one of the things that highlighted to me, okay, they clearly got, you know, process-driven patterns of play from Arteta and Tierney stuck to it in a moment where most of the team were like, it's all right, just go along. Because it wasn't... Re- Aparte was under pressure and obviously at 2-0, it's like, well, I don't need to give him the ball here. We don't need to really break through the press. We don't really need to keep possession. We can avoid any kind of danger by going long and also you know look we're gonna we can talk about Thomas Partey we can talk about a possible handball from Declan Rice in that moment we can talk about whether Paqueta went down yeah I mean Gabriel pulled out the challenge before before any contact 
Because I think, you know, even though we're sitting here talking about, you know, our Arsenal cracking under pressure, you know, with the penalty miss, coupled with how West Ham scored their penalty, you kind of sit here and think, well, did Arsenal really deserve to win? You know, we're saying bottle, we're saying cracking, and actually we should be saying, you know, maybe not we're Arsenal robbed, but they easily could have won that game. yeah. Yeah, they easily could have won that game. So might as well talk about those issues. What did we think? Rice handball, let's start there, Alison. I couldn't see it. I Tom. saw a lot of angles, didn't see a handball. Tom? Uh, no, and also I actually, I, I know we're kind of getting into the whole laws of the game here, but I still think the Antonio one is is harsh as, as well because I just don't know what you do in that situation. It, it, it looks so odd and it must be, my, my playing career is long, long retired. Um, it, it, when I was playing I didn't have to even think about putting my hands down but I can't imagine trying to defend and and Run accelerate a yeah. pace at someone with your arms behind your back I, I I can't so there is a there is an issue there that's unresolved but I don't I don't I think it's harsh for them to have conceded a penalty there you agree with that yeah what did you make but, but, in the, but as Tom's saying like still rec- well recognising that there's a penalty in yeah. the VAR era. Uh, right handball? No. No? Okay. For you? <laughs> Sounds like an I, I watched. I tried to watch as many angles as I could today and I got all my Arsenal mates saying it was definitely a handball. And there's a couple of angles where you think it must have hit his arm, but you can't see the ball actually hit the arm. And in my mind, it's like, we're all sitting there like, well, if you, you know, we're computing it saying there can't really be any distance between the ball and the arm. I can see that most of the arm, I can see most of the ball, there must have been a touch. Or maybe, maybe but... the future of BAR is artificial intelligence then for that very reason, yeah. Hugh, that you, we, we can't see it, football, but, to be honest. but <laughs> if the angles mean there was no possible way the ball went where it went unless it touched an arm, then AI would say or that. Or could you see so what? But then, but then <laughs> I think on top of it, it would have had to have been a deliberate handball, wouldn't it? Isn't there a, there's still a proximity factor when it comes to... What, what did your West Ham mates handball about? <laughs> handball? Uh, delighted with a point, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> we'll take it all day But long. when they sit down, they're going to do this, aren't they? They're going to reconfigure the laws of handball and what it... They, one of them should be ricochets because that's that's what happened with, with Antonio. It was a ricochet onto his arm. That is not... That shouldn't be a handball. They should they should change the the rules for that. Right. Okay. What what about Paqueta? I thought this was a clear dive, actually. And I know people are saying, well, Gabriel gave him the chance to do it by sliding in. I know he tried his absolute best to pull out of the challenge, but actually I thought this was an error from VAR because before the contact, Paqueta is virtually horizontal. So for me, it's a dive. I know there's contact. I know Gabriel touches him. Funnily enough, he touches his right foot, which somehow he managed to put on that side of his body, even though he was running to the right-hand side. So um, I, I, he knew the content. He knew a challenge was coming, clearly, Paqueta. But, um, and, and you, you know, we've, we've had this debate time in the past of, well, look, it could still be a foul, even if he didn't mean to, because firstly, there's contact. The player knew the challenge was coming. He did what he could to get out of the way, and that's why he was going over, is trying to avoid injury and all of these things. But really... In my heart of hearts, the moment I watched it, I thought it was an outrageous dive. No, I thought it was the cleverest dive I've ever seen, actually. Because I thought, first first look, that's a penalty. Second look, it's a penalty. It took a few looks to realise what he'd done, and he did it beautifully. Yeah. It's one of those where it is a dive. 
But it's also a fellowship, a fellowship <laughs> yeah. uh, kind of engagement by the defender. He's like going to going to ground. Like I, I know it was he could have shot first time probably too. So kind of I think that's why he was not on his right. He's not going to do probably that, not. But, he didn't. <laughs> but that's why he went to ground and then you kind of you sort of realise he brought his knees back and it's one of those where from both sides uh, it was a foolish foolish decision. But you have to give the penalty, I think, even if even though it is a dive. Yeah, you can you can dive and exactly be yeah. legitimately uh, given a penalty at the same time. Yeah, yeah. It, it looked like Holdings about to clear the ball as well. I think he gets the ball first anyway. It's a heavy, oh, very heavy touch. Yeah, penalty, yeah. But he knew he was dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the touch was I'm going over here all day long. Yeah, anything then shoot on my right foot. Just very quickly on West Ham, are they building the kind of form to pull themselves away from? Well, no, I was in, a... Ghent, I was in Ghent on at the game on Thursday, and the like, there were some really, really glum West Ham supporters on the Eurostar home the next day. Like, they knew, with the knowledge of Arsenal coming on Sunday, they were like, "Oh, this could be bad." And after the first half an hour, or whatever, it, you know, it could have been really bad. And as we've said, the atmosphere was ready to turn, if not already turning. So it was a really, really important and quite admirable turnaround for West Ham. They've created a little gap now, they're climbing, but I still wouldn't say that it's, it's beyond them to get dragged back in because they have performances like Thursday nights in the locker, which was horrendous. Yeah. I'm going to the game on Thursday as well, I'm sure you are. I, I'm, I'm almost like, is it better for their season to get knocked out again? No. No, no. No, I'm too close now. And they can. They're favourites. They, they, they have to like, win it, you're saying. They don't have to win it, but if they win it, then oh, the league, and they win it and they stay up and they finish, what, what is it, 19th, uh, 17th or whatever, yeah, yeah. then... Europa League and... It's forgotten. That's, yeah. That side of it's forgotten and something amazing's happened. So, That's true, yeah. Like, the, Kufal was speaking to us before the game and he's he was recognised now, saying, you know, we finished 6th and 7th and, you know, it was a great achievement for West Ham, but... No one's really going to remember it that much. I like think if we win a trophy, a European trophy, and we finish, we just stay up by this kind of teeth. This is a hell of a Who's season. Left in it, then who would they if they? They, get they will probably they would probably oh, face oh, Anderlecht, Anderlecht in the next. We'd have already faced in the group stage and beaten. Well, there you go. And yeah. well, that's over two legs again. And then I think Fiorentina are the only other kind of team that you would think. But the favourites, absolutely possible that they win this trophy. Ollie Watkins, uh, let's talk about him. Uh, his great form continued. Two goals as Aston Villa boosted their European hopes. They beat Newcastle, who had a five-match winning run coming into this game by three goals to nil. Aston Villa made it five in a row themselves in the Premier League for the first time since 1998. John Gregory was the boss. Uh, it's now 14 goal involvements uh, from Ollie Watkins since the World Cup, 11 goals and three assists but um yeah they're improving i'm still in my, <laughs> I, i'm still in my mind wondering how good aston villa are really i think in this run this was their best performance this was definitely their best result but you know are they in a false position you know they're up there in the premier league top six at the moment but they played i think a couple of games more than brighton maybe one game more than Liverpool, I think top six would 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 feel a, a little bit false for me. Is that is are you, are you well? That's really interesting. Are you saying that because you think you look at the the team sheet and think there's no one there who excites me a lot? Are you remembering what they were like at the start of the season? Are are you just not as thrilled by watching them as you are by a team like Brighton? Because I don't think they're terribly thrilling that often, Villa. Whereas. 
they are the, one of the big, I think they're one of the big stories. Mm. Yeah. Emery yeah. coming in and we'll talk about Frank Lampard not having any bounce at all. Emery had it immediately. Mm. Within 10 seconds, they were playing better. I mean, it's, it's astonishing what they were and what they are. I don't... No, but listen. I, I, I think it would be lovely if they were to make the Champions League. Mm. Absolutely and that, that is the yeah. conversation now. It seems... No, it's not. It is. It is, it is. It is the conversation. It's not getting in the Champions League. Well, well, no one's convincing above them. Well, well they're, they're inconsistent that. above them. I think it's been a nice run of fixtures. I don't mean to be harsh. It, but it I don't only, mean to be harsh. It only gets nicer. They've got Brentford, Fulham. They've got Wolves in the next seven games. There is there is strong potato harsh with Brentford and Fulham. Is yeah, it doesn't? I'm tricky. But it's it's not. I'm not. I don't think there are any easy games this yeah. uh, towards the end of this season. But there's very very winnable. Well, they, play, they play Spurs and they play Brighton too. I watch it and I, I love. I, you all know that I really respect Unai Emery. I love Unai Emery. Love what he did. Always does with his teams. It, it, tactically, it's great. It's very much like a proactive defensive system you know they're incredibly tough to beat lots of his teams have been incredibly hard to even score against and clearly that is working at Aston Villa at the moment but my point is really when you look at the run it's eight games unbeaten but a victory over Everton victory over Crystal Palace who were playing really poorly draw with West Ham we know where they were when that you know they're in the relegation zone pretty much when that game happened win over Bournemouth win over Chelsea who are pretty much the worst team in the league Leicester also down there Nottingham Forest also down there and then alright like I said that's why we're seeing this Newcastle United I get it that's the best result in all of them and that's why I ask how good are they really because I feel like as good as they've played it's been a good run of fixtures I think when them. they haven't won they've played well and when they started they were winning games people didn't when Emery took over he was winning games he wasn't expected to win so I think they've had not just that run you've highlighted, but they've they've been performing well in all the games since he took over. The system, they haven't played badly. The system's pretty fascinating too. Like you mentioned how good they are without the ball, but like McGinn and Ramsey's rules are are you know they're kind of slightly, although they're right and left, they're slightly yeah, narrow. Yeah. But also often when the ball goes into Vendia, they run they run from out to end. They, you know they don't hold wide to, to give the width. Fullbacks often do that. They run across them, and that's so hard to mark. And then you've always got Watkins stretching the play as well. I mean, like, all we see of Watkins' best play is him running and behind Which the he wasn't doing before Emery came in. He was trying to hold the ball up, which has never been his greatest strength. No. His, his greatest strength is playing off the shoulder yeah. of a defender and getting in behind. And they've got... It feels like Emery... It sounds quite simple, but it sounds... It, he, is, he is doing... He's using these players in the way they should be used. Wendy is being used in the right way. Watkins is being used in the right way. And then he's getting the best out of guys like McGinn. And Ashley Young, 38 years old, comes in and puts in an amazing performance at the weekend. That again. is exactly the point, because under Dean Smith, Villa were a one-man team. It was Ollie Watkins. And every presser, Dean Smith would say, the work Watkins does for me, you know, it's not about... His goal scoring, it's his movement. He gets he gets stuck in on the wing. He helps me out defensively. I have never seen a player who works so hard and is so unselfish. And Emery's come in and said, "No, you're a blooming centre forward. Don't do that. Don't do all that. Just do that." Mm -hmm. And Watkins is really enjoying it. He's got less responsibility. He doesn't feel the need to be to carry the team sometimes. And he's 
it's like watching someone grow up in front of your eyes. The, the interviews Watkins gave pre-Emery and he's given post-Emery, it sounds like a different person because he's ab- been given advice and he likes the advice. They absolutely blitzed New- Newcastle. How many teams have we seen do, do that to Newcastle this, this season? Like obviously Newcastle did a bit of an off day, but you know I, I kind of agree with you. There's been that whole narrative in the background about how strong the teams are they've played in this run and they've got some bigger tests to come as well. But this was one of them. Yeah. And they passed it flying yeah, colour. Yeah, yeah. The, the biggest compliment I give to the Aston Villa squad is I remember when Steven Gerrard was there and Unai Emery was appointed and I basically said, I don't think this squad has the commitment to play the style of football that Unai Emery demands because, you know, speaking about his other teams, the one hallmark of them is, I mean, it's out and out commitment to the cause, work rate, you know, it was incredibly high and these were all the things that were missing under Steven Gerrard. And I thought, well, it must be the players. I, I mean, I, you know, I didn't. You all know, I didn't think Joe was a, br- a brilliant manager, but I thought the performances lacked all of the hallmarks of a new Emery team. And I thought he's going to need a couple of transfer windows to be able to work his magic, and he's just done it with the same group of players. Mm. And I think credit to him, but also credit to the players because their application's been miles better. But also credit to Christian Perslow and the, the club for getting him in because he is a very good manager. And and probably better than Villa, to be honest. So it was it was remarkable work to to get him into the club. But also, it, it's quite inspired in terms of Villa are that that club that are kind of middle of the table and the kind of club that Emery has always overachieved with. I, I could easily see. I was saying that the conversation is is Champions League football right now, and it. It remarkably actually is because it's possible and who knows how these final weeks of the season are going to go and the form Villa are in, it is possible. But I could see Villa going and winning the Europa League next year because mm. I know that's that's Emery's, that's Emery's thing, but that just seems to be the, the trend they're on and they're just brilliant to watch. Why, why, why do you say that? He's better than Villa, Tom. It, sorry. <laughs> you, yeah, you're looking for at Tom Roddy. <laughs> Villa fans, yeah. Okay. 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 We're, we're Villa wearing the table, absolutely. But, but crikey, they, they, they were the most ambitious. Them, I mean, obviously Newcastle, they were playing, are hugely ambitious, but so are they. Like, I think before the, the Saudi takeover Newcastle, they had like, I think they were the third wealthiest owners in the in the Premier League. Yeah. They, they, they want to be up, yeah, you know, in the conversation have, for the Champions have, League. Villa have history. They are a big club. They have a huge fan base. They have a big stadium. They know what it's like to do well in Europe. Not recently, but they know what it's like. So why why shouldn't Emery think I can bring it back? That's what they've been after anyway for a long time is someone who can bring it back. And also he turned down Newcastle as well, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He did. He's um, a man of honour. <laughs> it's crazy though, because every time I see Villa doing well, it's still, it's still the greatest sliding doors moment in Premier League history the goal line technology and the, the goal that was never given against Sheffield United that means basically Bournemouth were relegated instead of Villa. Oh, and you're going to love this conversation <laughs> today. <laughs> but it's just, it's, just, it's just crazy to see, like I say, the soap opera football. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, why would you watch anything else? Anyway. Okay, let's head to Stamford Bridge next. And Teenager... Julio Enciso, what a goal to win it at Stamford Bridge. Brighton coming from behind to beat Chelsea in the Premier League. First time they have ever won away at Chelsea in the league. Uh, it was Frank Lampard's first match 
at home since being reappointed as the Chelsea boss. Victory lifted Brighton to within a point of sixth place Villa, but they have played two games fewer. Firstly, just on this kid, NC, so I think we have to reflect kind of Gregor on the recruitment at Brighton here once again. Nine and a half million pounds from the Paraguayan side, Libertad Ascension. But yeah, again, you know, 19 years old. I think that's the thing that struck. It wasn't even that they'd found a gem. It was that they'd found, signed a gem when he was 18, you know, from Paraguay. I don't even know how they're recruiting these players at Brighton. It's, it's incredible, yeah. I, I think I've referenced this uh, the cup game I went to see at Forest Green at the start of the season about 10 times now in this podcast because the three players who I'd never seen before and watched play that night were Evan Ferguson, Matoma and then Cecil. And like, look at the impact they've made a few there of several months on in the season. Yeah, Forest Green didn't know what hit them. <laughs> and yeah, it's what a strike. Ridiculous. Absolutely beautiful strike. The recruitment is just incredible. I don't know what else to say about it. They find, find markets that other clubs don't know how to work as well and uh, exploit that advantage. And they've done it on a number of occasions now in South America. It's ridiculous. There needs to be a documentary about Brighton because we all know about the owner and um, the statistical approach to betting. And I'm kind of wondering if there's a bit of money ball going on at Brighton now, a statistical approach to recruitment. Might be. I'm just saying, I have absolutely no inside knowledge, but maybe they're looking at the underlying data and saying we need a player that produces this. And they're looking at it across the world and seeing more players, obviously, their statistics mapped and GPSs and all of that stuff and stats being uploaded to the internet and having a real global database of players is maybe helping Brighton. That is, of course, all speculation. They do. They do. They have. <laughs> <laughs> they do, yeah. They they. They, I think they kind of they pay a fee to to Bloom's company to to you know harvest that data, yeah. but they also have created really strong relationships with scouts and clubs in South America. There was, I know that Caicedo when he came, there was well, just about every club in Europe were after him, but they Brian had signed a player before who's not made an impact, but they had that relationship with uh, with people in that region, and that counts for a lot because because normally the move. For clubs, uh, for players in that area, is to Brazil. Sometimes Italy, sometimes often Belgium, actually. And so a move directly to the Premier League doesn't happen that often. And they they form the relationships that have made it easier. And they always are a step ahead of the step aheaders. Yeah. So they're always thinking not who's the player who's going to come in if we lose him. They're going. He's like playing chess. Well, you're thinking three or four moves ahead. Where and most clubs don't think that far ahead. Mm. I also think it's just the stage and platform on which they play on because you get a guy like Evan Ferguson who in at the beginning of the year Oxford United were looking at taking him uh, in in the January transfer window he plays a couple of games for Brighton and is absolutely brilliant and there's no chance he's going anywhere near League One players come through like Mitoma straight into the team after Trossard and I think Chelsea had played against Vinicius Junior a few days earlier and it didn't get any easier with Matoma there. I thought they were going to put in a bid for him by half time with the way things were 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 going with Matoma, but they are they are so impressive and and they looked like the team who should have been playing should be playing Real Madrid this week because fans who went to that game were being generous to Chelsea. They would say about the shuffling of the pack the change, the tweaks to the team and 
having an eye on Tuesday because that is the big game for them this season. But it's not like it's not like Brighton haven't got FA Cup semi final this weekend. They've they've got a game to look forward to, but you couldn't see it in that match at all. And also they suffered setbacks. Ferguson came off really early um, with an ankle injury and, and will miss, or looks likely to miss, De Zerbi said on Sunday, looks likely to miss that game. And then Welbeck comes on and he's as, as excellent as he ever as he always is for Brighton. And in CISO scores the goal. There is always someone waiting behind to come in at Brighton. I think, yeah. the, I think they're the best team to watch in the league just now. Like obviously that fluctuates and City are looking ridiculous and Arsenal have been brilliant all season but they're fascinating to watch like tactically from a tactical point of view been a couple of the games recently and the way that James Gearbrand wrote about it in his newsletter a couple of weeks back the way they beat the press they kind of stand on the ball or I was watched against Brentford it was incredible the Levi Colwell was kind of in the centre circle taking little cushion touches forward and Ivan Tony was like looking like he's on the starter blocks ready to go for him but not doing it like what what are you watching here <laughs> a centre half trying to say come on yeah, come on yeah. and then it's like, I think it's like a street fighter before they start fighting <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> two people are just bobbing up and down yeah. waiting to approach one another yeah, exactly. like, they're, they're, they're not unique in that but they, they do it like really impressively and and also the way that they're, they're wide play Tom often hugs the touch side but Solly March drives inside they're always cutting in and playing in crosses to the back post and the way that they create overloads too, they Caicedo's really the only one who sits and McAllister and often Gross. Even when I watched him against Grimsby, he was playing at right back Gross, but he went to play as a, an auxiliary number 10. So they always have an overload of the oppositions, either back three or four. It's like they have these principles that they all know and they've obviously been drilled so well in. And it's fascinating to watch. Could be a very interesting Europa League for Premier League uh, teams, depending on who gets there next year. Now, if Brighton could be in the Champions League, if they are, it might mean that Newcastle or Manchester United are in the Europa League. Once United again, but Newcastle will be interesting. A Spurs, a Villa, maybe a Brighton. Who knows what you know? The likes of Brentford could do. Even Liverpool. Who knows? They might get into Europe this year, but. Um, Exactly, yeah. And good news on this podcast, by the way. Liverpool aren't playing until tonight. So you didn't have to worry about that this week. Um, but yeah, Tom, you were at the game. There are some big stories developing around Chelsea today. You have reported that Chelsea have held a, mil- a meeting with Julian Nagelsmann as they aim to narrow down the shortlist of candidates to become their next permanent head coach. Paul Winstanley and Lauren Stewart, uh, Chelsea's co-sporting directors, leading the process of recruiting Graham Potter's successor. They held the first in-person talks with Nagelsmann on Thursday. Is he the guy? Is he the favourite? They insist not uh, that it's a wide open race. You might ask why Nagelsmann would be attracted to to Chelsea right now if you you look at the way they're playing and performing. But um, yeah, they insist not and it's a wide open race. Uh, They are looking to narrow down the, the short list they're at about the middle stage of this process and of course uh, whatever you think of them appointing Lampard as caretaker it's just bought them a bit of time to to complete this and make sure whoever it whoever it is whoever is the the chosen one is 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 right they just don't want to make the same mistake they made before and this is really this is the the crucial decision of their ownership it feels like the biggest 
decision of their ownership because they looked at hiring up and comers in the in the squad over the last two seasons, but also on the bench because they saw that in Potter and the acceptance with the squad is that some players might not make it. They might not fulfil their potential. And the problem was the first one to show that in their, in their eyes was Graham Potter. So now they've got to make sure that they don't make that same mistake again. And I think they will look for a bit more pedigree. And key thing with Nagelsmann is that you mentioned Lawrence Stewart, one of the co-sporting directors. He worked with Nagelsmann at RB Leipzig. Christopher Vivell, who is uh, a technical, the technical director there, he he worked with him at, at Leipzig and, and Hoffenheim as well, I believe. So naturally almost has a jump start on the, the other candidates. So uh, I think he is the front runner at the moment if he if he wants the job you know there's there's talk of the um Real Madrid job is likely to become vacant this summer PSG is is probably going to become vacant too would they want him isn't the key to all this tom don't you think whether the people they're interviewing are go- going to be honest when asked about what needs to be done um, will chelsea want to hear someone say well the recruitment's been chronically bad and I think you need to get rid of 20, 30, 40% of people you've already just yourselves as new owners have spent money on do they want someone who's going to come in and say oh I think the recruitment's amazing I can mould a fantastic team I'm so glad you spent money on these players or do, which I think is the wrong approach or do they want someone to come in and say well you, you, you made mistakes you've got it wrong we, we need to I know we're going to have problems with spending too much because of financial fair play but we, we really don't want a squad this bloated I'm sure, who will they listen to i'm sure they want the former because otherwise it's bloody expensive but that's not the <laughs> mistake no 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 it? no no of course not and there's this idea of kind of yes men isn't there but i think the one thing that i personally think it's a very good squad that needs desperately needs trimming because it mm. is bloated as you say but it's a very good squad with very good players in it. And I don't think they're, in terms of coaching, I don't think they're a million miles away. We saw that with Thomas Tuchel. He came in and transformed them overnight on the flight over from uh, Paris to London because he was um, a really elite coach with the right tools in front of him to just tweak a a few things. But I don't think... I think Potter struggled partially or largely because of that reason. Players will struggle to be motivated or feel any sense of certainty and confidence when they don't know if they're playing, when they're being chopped and changed each week um, because Graham Potter tried to keep them all happy and it's hard to do with a squad that size, or maybe impossible. I'd be tempted. I don't think it'll be Pochettino. I don't think so, but I would be tempted for him because I think he manages up extremely well and I also think he has a reputation for developing players, getting the best out of teams, which is what they need and want to do. So I think he would be a smart way to go, but I don't think they will. And uh, so he endear himself to the Spurs fans, of course. 
Yeah, but it, I, I don't see Daniel Levy coming and banging on his door right now. That's true. So go and sit un- unemployed just so you don't ruin your legacy with, with us. See if he gets Harry Kane in the summer. In that case. <laughs> <laughs> sure, he won't mind either. Anyway, uh, Chelsea facing Real Madrid at Stamford Bridge on Tuesday in the Champions League quarterfinal second leg. Remember, they lost 2-0 at the Bernabeu last week. Dean Smith, who was also another interim boss, uh, this time his first game in charge of Leicester and he was 3-0 down at Manchester City after 25 minutes. There was a bit of a resurgence. It only finished 3-1 in the end. The Fox is deep in trouble. 19th, two points off safety at the moment. Interestingly, Dean Smith said, we came into the, the match with a plan to stay in the game. So that, that worried me quite a lot, obviously going 3-0 down so early, but they did have a number of chances later on. Could have made it a very different story. So they, they just have to build on that second half moving forward, I think. Um, I'd still be very concerned if I was a Leicester supporter. But you can't, he can't, because it was his first game, he can do that. He can say, let's forget the first 45 minutes and let's focus on how you took on board some of what I was trying to talk about. In the second 45, they were, they were, it was, they were different in the second half. They had a bit of buoyancy, energy. They didn't, they stopped looking scared of Man City. And Dean Smith, unlike Brendan Rodgers, knows how to get out of um, a relegation tussle. He can be as pragma- pragmatic as is necessary. So I, I'm, I, yeah, it looks, they're in a tricky situation. But at this point, if I was a Leicester fan, I'd be thinking, I'm going to go with it. I think Dean Smith could just make it happen. Agree? Yeah, look, we said last last time, it was basically about a change of atmosphere. And this game was a bit of a kind of, not, not a free hit, but it was like they knew what they were, you could see from kickoff, in fact, that how they were coming to play. Just so defence, you know, so sitting behind the ball, two blocks, and hardly any any attempt to kind of spring forward. And in the second half, when they had kind of nothing to lose as well, they did show some real life and, and had a few chances that could have made the game like a little bit tetchy for, for, for City. Madison springs to mind when he went through on goal and tried to pick out the near post. But the games, you know, the the next few weeks, I think we've got Wolves, the Wolves next, they're on Saturday that's that's a huge game for them obviously and we know Wolves are kind of pulling away now but uh, that's a game that you look at in the running and think it's got to, got to be one they get points from next so three games are massive for them Wolves Leeds and Everton and, and we've seen from Hodgson Roy Hodgson at Palace what a few points can do suddenly you look at Palace and just think oh they're fine now because they've just pu- pulled away with a couple of wins and that's three yeah, three wins. And that's how tight it is at the bottom right now. You get, you pick up a few wins and you get away uh, get away from it all. But you can be dragged straight back in. But this is the period right now for Leicester. It's a, it's a huge, huge period. And, and the form is just horrendous. Nine defeats in 10 games, one point in that period. That That is relegation form. They, they deserve to go down for that right now. And it's kind of unthinkable. But maybe all they needed was to accept properly that they are in a relegation mm. battle and appointing Dean Smith makes that what it is. Whereas under Rogers, it was almost, well, we're far too good to be in this yeah. mess. You know, a little 
could be fine. Too good to go down. See the goals as well. The city scored the sliced well. Stones strike. Wow. Yeah. And then De Bruyne's little pass for the run that was perfectly timed mm. and a cushion in the outside of his left foot to uh, Haaland to bring it through and lift over the keeper. There's not a lot you can do about that, and it could have been, you know, it could have been a humbling afternoon after that that only half an hour. So I think they'll take some encouragement from the second half display. I'm still doubtful that they'll stay up. I know you can't take a lot from this match. Obviously, Man City away. What did they have? Seventy-one percent possession or something ridiculous. It was obviously two sides who were on different levels. But um, the only thing I'd say is the forward players for those next three matches have to click. Like there has to be something going forward. I, I, if I'm Leicester, I'm almost like I don't care if, if all those games are four-three. Perfect. You know, it's honestly you just have to win them. But the players in front of goal I think is where you've probably you've probably got more difference makers in your team yes obviously they haven't delivered throughout the season seen a bit of life for Premier Nacho of late still hot and cold though yeah 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 this is what I'm saying all you need to do hot for those three games that's all I care about if I'm a Leicester fan and we'll see if Dean Smith can turn it around um it has to be I think you're right Tom about the change of environment I don't think we're going to see anything tactical to astound us to see Leicester get out of this so um Hopefully that environment does change. Uh, just very quickly on Manchester City, because we were talking about the title race a little bit earlier on and they just look relentless now. Um, it's sad for us all to see. Because <laughs> it looks like they're going to reel in Arsenal and no one wants that to happen, do they? <laughs> yeah, but when they when they crash out of the Champions League, it will affect them. Their psyche, won't it? So there's hope. But they won't, will they? Crash out of the Champions League. It's what they usually do. Not, not, not in this round, though. You think semi-finals? I wouldn't call getting to the semi crashing out that you made the semis. Yeah, but that's, that is, for the, from their point of view, that is crashing out. Given yeah, given yeah, given how right. much money their squad is worth and the manager they have, the fact that they haven't won it is getting deeply embarrassing. And to not make the final is acutely embarrassing. Uh, I've started to think about the treble when it comes to Manchester City. Although they sounds double- mad because they're only in the semi-final of the FA Cup. They haven't yet reached the semi-final of the Champions League. They're not even top of the Premier League. Although there's a reason like we we always get sucked in from like recency bias. It's like there was we were having this conversation about Liverpool yeah, going into quadruple. Yeah. There's always something that can be like a a bit of bad luck. It could be an injury, it could be just one off day. Well, uh, stop it! But they, they, they look different. They, they look, they look relentless, as you say, and and this is what they do every year at this time of year, and they're always in the conversation, and there've been reasons why they've slipped up. Obviously, Haaland's a big addition this year. It's possible, but yeah. it's going to be be no mean feat if they did so. One little nugget from Bill's column, which I thought was astounding today, is that in the past year, City have scored a hundred and one more goals than Chelsea in all competitions, a hundred and fifty-five to fifty-four. I mean, I don't know what to take from that, but it's it's amazing. Chelsea have scored fifty four goals in a year. <laughs> Is that the way you're looking at it? That's the take, mate. I thought I thought it'd be like two fifty to one fifty. <laughs> you know, okay, all right, bloody hell, yeah. But they are. They're, they're what was it? Ten wins in a row, unbeaten at fourteen in all competitions. As Tom said before, three goals, six games in a row, three goals or more. They are, they're purring. And they, even though they took, you know, he, he was taking people at half time, taking people off in, in 60 minutes, he had that luxury. And that that's the other thing. If they're kind of steamrolling teams and, and they they can manage their resources because they have more games than everyone else, uh, that'll be important. They've got a lot more games yeah. than everyone else. It will obviously come down to the game that the Etihad between 
Manchester City and Arsenal I think in terms of this title I still think Arsenal have a lot of a lot to give the league this year and obviously they're going to play a lot fewer matches than Manchester City if City do get through to the two finals they've got in cup competitions so we'll you look see. sad man <laughs> it kind of makes me sad but I'll leave the conversation for if it happens if City win the Premier League title again not because I don't want Man City to win the title but because of the wider context of what would that be five out of six what that means for English football really so I'm kind of trying to put that to the back of my mind at this point in time and hope that Arsenal do something that we can turn around and say wow you know a team with with less money yeah, the only the thing coach. is though they're not they're not they're not steamrolling every single year it's not it's not quite that um it's not quite that league where they're winning by the margins that they were a few years ago yeah, no, but they're forcing Arsenal. other they're forcing other teams to hit that are like un- yeah. unprecedented yeah absolutely the thing is, you don't want it to be this. You don't want it to get silly where teams are getting over ninety points, but Man City still win it. So you know, what I mean, it's like if you do, if you were another club and you think, yeah, we get ninety points this year, we can win the Premier League. You know, it's only City that can beat you if you get ninety points, yeah. but but they can and they have done, and that's the thing. You know, it's if they have an off year, ninety five points. If they have an on year, hundred and one, hundred and two. It's like. Mm. That's the thing. It's such a high bar when it, and it's only when it comes to Manchester City. So, a little nugget here as well. Statistically, Kevin De Bruyne, fifteen or more assists in a single Premier League season, for the fourth time in his career. How many other players have done it more than once? Oh, That's I don't it. Know, but I guess you're saying because none. No, Ozil. No, he's not done it more than once. He's done it once. Yeah. Thirteen players have done it once. One other player has done it more than once. That player is Cesc Fabregas. Oh, yeah. And Kevin De Bruyne has done it four times. Mm. It's incredible. Anyway, love him. We all love him. And uh, let's move on. Uh, Alan loves him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really Because he's the only player at Manchester City that when he makes the run that stretches the defence, goes, all right then, I'll just turn it around the corner, I'll play the through ball, yeah. and it's inch perfect. But he was complaining to him after the game on Saturday about not having enough space. Harland went up to De Bruyne and was complaining that he didn't have enough space to play. And, of course, the the difficulty that he has in English football is playing against De Bruyne, playing against Harland. You're going to get five at the back, four in midfield and just pack it. So he's managing all right, though. He's doing okay. <laughs> he's doing okay. 47th goal of the season. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. I think in Europe's big leagues, it's only uh, Kylian Mbappe, who's got over 30 at this point, 31. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Best result of the weekend, as far as I'm concerned, because Bournemouth kept it going, okay? You've got to ride the wave if you're going to stay in the Premier League if you're Bournemouth. Dango Wuatra, a stoppage time winner, stunning finish at Tottenham. Um, you thought it was going to be a, a Bournemouth win, Spurs equalise, then Bournemouth go down the other end and snatch the winner. Dramatic finish, it was 3-2 in the end, and Bournemouth make it four wins out of the last six Premier League games. Uh, after winning at Leicester last week to move out of the bottom three, the Cherries are now six points clear of the drop zone and in 14th. And you want to say it's going to be tight. In my in my mind, I'm like, are they already safe? I think they may be. Uh, and it's, it's tough. It's tough to call right now, but they might be. They might be kind of three points away from definitely being safe because you can't see two of the teams in the bottom three, two of the three that could go down with Southampton, it seems, at this point in time getting that many points so it's very very close for Bournemouth if not done already but yeah oh, I might as well you might as well give me a view on that Gregor have well, yeah, I, did a, I did a little sort of analysis of about a month back maybe of uh, the kind of relegation battle and I think I look back over the last 10 seasons and Everton uh, were on course at that point as the team who were in 18th to get 32 points and the average is I think 33 so over that period of time so I think another point with almost would make it pretty certain for them. If you look at the teams down there, look at Leicester, Southampton, Forest and Everton, can you see two or three of them getting two two or three wins out of seven games, I think it is? No. I think I honestly think it could be quite a low threshold this year. And anyway, Bournemouth, I think they're in, they've been in magnificent form. Even before their, their results turned, there were some really narrow kind of like defeats or draws where they kind of conceded late. And although their immediate form after the World Cup was shocking, they... It, their performances after that uh, weren't quite getting the results they deserved and now they are. I thought they were brilliant. They were just so underestimated, weren't they? I mean, I, I for one, I'm sure there were loads of people assumed they were gone. It was over probably as as early as autumn um, because of the form they were in and, and you know, holding, holding my hands up, they put Gary O'Neill in charge and it feels slightly uninspired and unambitious really and the truth is that he's shown himself to be a really smart manager and the job the job he's done isn't isn't too far or his his name should be mentioned in the manager of the year um yeah. nominees because of what he's done there even even the Allison will be able to talk about this more than I can but even the game on Saturday at Spurs because he matched them up didn't he he went three at the back and they they were they were so much more effective. And the, the one thing he has done, we started this podcast talking about Arsenal and tension. This is a team at the bottom of the table who who have been facing relegation all season. 
and they 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 seem to play without any tension, especially that last minute winner. There was a freedom, and there he has managed to ingrain a siege mentality into that team that has driven them to to seemingly to safety. Because I I think looking at the table, looking at the fixtures. I think they probably are safe now, which is remarkable from a few months ago. The best thing that happened to Bournemouth was losing 9-0 at Anfield. But they got rid of Scott Parker, who didn't believe they had the resources to get out of trouble and stay in the division. And they brought in Gary O'Neill. And I went to Bournemouth on Wednesday last week to interview Philip Billing. And I said, you know, we we don't know much about Gary O'Neill. What's he like as a manager? And he said, oh, he just, you know, he does all the tactical work, but he tells us to enjoy ourselves. Let's just play with freedom. And that has been the key. You know, it doesn't matter the circumstances. On Saturday, they left their hotel and then got stuck behind a van that caught fire on the North, North Circular. They were sat still for 55 minutes. And the amount of emotional energy that went into trying to get the kickoff delayed, because you can't, you can't warm up when you get to the ground if you're 55 minutes late. Mm. And 15 minutes wasn't enough. So they had that underlying concern about, gosh, you know, this could have a knock-on effect on our season if players start pulling up with hamstrings and whatever because we haven't had time to warm up. They got the 15 minutes. I mean, really, that should have meant they were wobbling a bit. They were able to do what they wanted to do. And maybe you could say, well, they probably did wobble initially because um, Spurs took the lead. But they didn't at any point play like they were scared or inhibited by the build-up to the game or inhibited by the fact they'd gone behind against Spurs. It's they're the opposite, actually, of what the situation that Leicester are in. Leicester now have to embrace the fact they're in a relegation battle and play pragmatically, you know, nastily or boringly, or whatever it takes to stay up. Whereas Bournemouth are in this situation where they're in a reasonably good position, certainly better than most of us thought they'd be, by playing with... They're attractive to watch, Um the t- t- as you say, that the 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 tactically fluid. You know, everyone predicted they'd play four at the back, and they didn't because they decided no against Spurs. That's not what we're going to do. Not a problem. Eased into it perfectly well, and then play with freedom and enjoyment. And you know, you just think, well, I I that nine nil. Would anyone have said oh, they're going to stay? No. So they needed. They almost needed that real horrible embarrassment and shock to rethink everything. And instead of worrying about the lack of money and investment. They um they bought a bit, didn't they, with the new owners. But they've they've done just enough, I think. They also stuck with Gary O'Neill. You know, often when a new ownership group comes in, you know, Americans ambitious, uh certainly want to mean you know, keep Premier League status and they've been on some bad runs. Yeah. And they stuck with them. I think uh, you know, that will might all quite a lot to Simon Francis and Richard Hughes, the the co co technical directors who um who kind of were part of the the discussions in, in terms of the takeover and what what needed to happen, and I think you know it wouldn't have been surprising if they were they were going to get some uh, edgy feet. But I think they saw because uh, Gary O'Neill was not in the running whatsoever for that for that job. Like you know, we saw Bielsa being thrown into the mix. We saw lots of names, and he kind of forced his way you know, with his with performances and results into into getting the job, and he's done a remarkable job. Just looking the the. Over the last 10 seasons, the team finishing 18th and relegated have finished with an average of 33.9 points. The lowest was Fulham with 28 in 2020-21 and the highest Newcastle with 37 in 15-16. That's a relegated team. So 
I think, and, and, and on this current trajectory, it's looking like a lower points tally than, than normal. So they could be safe. They may need another point or two, but they're just over there. There's going to be some brilliant. The, the final day of the season is going to be incredible. So That's got, the only thing. Yeah, the teams playing each against yeah, each other. If it's Everton, Everton, Argentina, then it's kind of Everton, Bournemouth, is Leicester, West Ham play each other as well. That is going to be some into the season. Alison, you were at the game, of course, and there have been Spurs headlines. Hugo Lloris coming out to say he's kind of unhappy with his own fans for booing Davison Sanchez. Said he'd never witnessed anything like it in his career. Sanchez, I think, was brought on at 35 minutes, two goals conceded by Spurs before he went off on 59. And you could see he cut a very lonely figure uh, on the bench as well. What did you make of that inside the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium? Yeah, well, he came on because Longley was injured and uh, was hot, so he had about 25 minutes in total on the pitch. The thing that Larice couldn't get his head round was it wasn't, well, you have a player booed when he comes on. That's not great, is it? You have a player cheered when he's taken off. That's not great. But what really got to Larice was he was also booed every time he touched the ball in between. Which is phenomenal. And Larice does, he says he doesn't know. He suggests that it might have been one of the reasons why Spurs lost the game because the atmosphere wasn't great. And you, if you're going to win games, you need a good atmosphere. And he's bang on. I haven't, I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think this is the first, certainly it would only be the second, and it's been a while since I've been to the um, Tottenham Stadium this season. And so I was, I, I had, had I forgotten? I don't know. I was surprised by the atmosphere. I remember when it was built, they thought about building, you know, a wall like, a wall of noise, they called it, and they had Dortmund in mind and that sense that it would be the place that no one wanted to go. And it was just rubbish. The atmosphere was absolutely rubbish. Like, the cheer for taking the lead was a sort of ho-hum cheer, like, oh, well, might be a quite nice afternoon. Not sure, probably be all right. It wasn't... There was. They roared their team on for about five minutes in total and you just think... And then there's the booing of an individual... And I bet I bet a large proportion of the Spurs fans were embarrassed about that, the booing of the, one of their own players. It wasn't that all of them felt that way. The minute that Bournemouth fans sing, we're staying up, the, first, the Spurs fans counter with, we won't leave you out. It's like they're not watching the game. They've got an agenda. They want, they want things to be different to what they are. And as Larice pointed out, yes, everyone would like things to be better and for us to know the direction we're going in and who the manager's going to be and so on, and that we're assured of Champions League football. But you're not going to get any of those things. If if the plushest, glitziest stadium in the land is also one of the easiest to go to, I was astonished really by the behaviour of quite a lot of the fans in different ways. I do find the, the kind of psychology around Spurs really interesting because as soon as Conte was sacked and then I guess Christian Stellini put in charge, which I think was a big thing alongside Ryan Mason, it's just felt like everyone's gone, oh, that's it, the season's over. Despite the fact that they were still in the top four at the time and, that, and they could easily finish in the top four still if they have a decent run of form. But Very easily. Like, like, you, like you point out, everything is about the bigger points around the club mm. and the issues. And it feels like no one is even really that interested in the football, despite the big target that's left for the rest of the season. I find it really weird, including the the Davinson Sanchez thing, which I felt was one of those moments where the clubs, the fans are really trying to say, why is this player still at the club? Why haven't you invested more? Why don't we have a better mm -hmm. squad? Rather than having a massive dig at Sanchez, I think they're just using everything they can 
to, like you say, let Daniel Levy know, like, yeah. you, you need to sort this out. But I do think, well, look, you've got a match in front of you that you need to, you, your players kind of need you to beat Bournemouth. They need your support and you're just distracted by other other stuff. Also, Pedro Porro's getting off lately then. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. Like, they've got a £39 million ob- obligation to buy him in the summer. I don't know what reports say. They did boo him once. He's been, like, not good. I don't know, I'll be polite about it. <laughs> He, I watched him against uh, Scotland for Spain as well, and he was like really hot headed. Yeah. And he just doesn't look like. I mean, did Gregor would find a way to get Scotland Spain? <laughs> <laughs> but he's made a, several errors for goals, and he doesn't like him defend. And, like, and he, 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 had, he, he had a good chance, actually, which sailed miles, miles, miles in the air. And that was uh, a point, one of the point, one of the points at which the mood went sour again after it had been. Point for a few minutes. He's coming in a difficult situation. There's no way you, know, you don't want to write him off or anything, but just another example of the recruitment which hasn't been yeah. a success. I think you're right, Hugh, that it is. Sanchez was almost a, a, a symbol of something far, far wider. He was a scapegoat and a bit of a, a punch bag, really, to, to the Spurs fans during during this game and I just think it's frustrations and a disconnect between a fan base and a club and a squad that's been going on for for five years well four sorry four years now and I I know this is a this is a different situation but it was wasn't so long ago that you had Eric Dyer storming up the the stands stands, into the stands and you just think of these these incidents and what happened with Sanchez, it it doesn't happen at clubs that often, so it's it's quite strange, and I just think it's there. It, what's weird about Spurs is that their season feels like it's really petering out, and yet it feels they, like it never never like a lift off. No. And yet, as we've said this whole season, but they're still like well, that's what I mean. Yeah. They, they can still qualify. It's for been the really really weird, yeah. Which is a a. a Par hitting par for the season, isn't it? Really, they are, they're desperate for a sense of identity as a yeah. football club. All of these issues, all of these things uh, that you you mentioned, Tom, it just come from the group, the fans, the hierarchy of the club, coaching staff, and the group of players just not being on the same page. I just think it's going to be hard for some people to take the real reality of what that page should look like. Which for me is. We haven't got as much money as a number of clubs above us in the Premier League. We've invested a huge amount into the stadium, into the training ground. We've got huge debts, so we're not going to be able to spend. So we either sit down and say, what's our strategy within this budget? But also, I think on top of that, you kind of have to say, you know, I suppose going to be a really Europa League team for the next few seasons. And do we kind of go all out to win that competition and see that as our way, maybe our, our best way of getting into the Champions League? Because I think... We're about to see them take a bit of a step back, particularly if they lose Harry Kane. Yeah. Stop hiring women arsonists as manager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, I, I would, I'd love to see Luis Enrique at Spurs. To be perfectly honest, again, in terms of that identity, Tottenham have always wanted to play football, whether they're a mid-table side or a side that's pushing for Europe or even got close to a title. And I think the move away from that has led to, I think, so many people fans being a little bit disenfranchised. Because obviously they're like, well, look, it's all good to to play bad football. If we win stuff, we're not winning stuff. So take us back to why we love Spurs, which is nice football and some creative players and something that we can applaud on a Saturday. So we'll see. I, I do do just very quickly on that final point, Alison, think that going forward, Spurs will have to kind of change 
they're not targets is a, is probably the wrong thing. They should still aim as high as any other club, if you like. Uh, like Ivan Tony said, Brentford go out to win the league. Why not? But but in terms of what is realistic for for Tottenham, what the expectation should be, I think that's going to have to change a little bit, isn't it? Or am I wrong? No, because they're they're doing so much that's wrong, and yet could quite very easily secure Champions League football this season, which gives you a fantastic base financially and attention globally and allows you to attract good players. I mean, Stellini went right down in my estimation because he's he's essentially the caretaker and he didn't shake O'Neill's hand. He disappeared down the tunnel and left Ryan Mason to do it. I can't prove this, can I? But I'm sure before he got tainted by the Spurs bug, he wouldn't have dreamt of behaving like that. It's just mildly toxic at the best of times there. I don't think it would help them in any way to lower their expectations. I think they need to, the opposite in a sense, they need to recognise the opportunities they have, but just invest in better brains behind, better football brains behind the scenes and maybe get the balance slightly better. There's a lot of effort and energy goes into making money from the stadium and making it an event destination. They want it used all the time. It's an NFL. It's, you know, those things should be seen as boosting the football, not detracting from it. And if you can crack that, you can think big. Okay, very finally, before we go, a couple of clubs in the relegation battle that I wanted to mention. Uh, Diego Costa scoring a first Premier League goal in nearly six years at Wolves, uh, beating Brentford and now seven points above the drop zone. Again, you'd have to feel that they are safe and Crystal Palace, a third straight win under Roy Hodgson, nine points clear of the drop zone. And I'd say they're definitely safe now. Uh, But that did leave Southampton rooted to the bottom of the table and looking likely to go down. On Palace, Eberichi Eze, beautiful second goal in particular, uh, but looking far more confident. He can be key to them having a good uh, end to the season. And who knows, if Diego Costa can score a few for Wolves, uh, they can have an even better end to the season. What do you think of these two sides? Eze was sublime, wasn't he? The little kind of shuffle of the hips to, to turn the defender... And then a strike. Yeah, he looks just like like he's brimming with confidence. Yeah, the opposite of what. To be fair, he was he'd been left out mm-hmm. a lot towards the end of Vieira's tenure. So, but you see, when you this is what's always been the case with Palace. You, th- you think there were so many players who like when they've got kind of their eyes are twinkling and they look like they're confident, and they want to be on the pitch and they're enjoying themselves. That forward line alone is like enough to bring you joy when you watch them. <laughs> but it just. It wasn't. It hasn't been like that for so long, and and again, we're talking about the change of environment and atmosphere. Possibly the fact that Ogden was someone they know they knew knew before. It's been a remarkable impact. And let's not forget, they're doing this without Zaha, and there was that long, long spell. If Zaha wasn't playing, they could not win. Yeah, and they've run three on the trot without him. Yeah, even yeah, but Alisi and Eze are just two players that they fit brilliantly with with Palace. You think that they could possibly go on to bigger and better things, but. They need to do it on a consistent enough basis. But they, yeah, they're safe. And Wolves, I think, pretty much are safe as well. Built on the back of like really well-organised defence. And you know they're start, starting to find the odd goal here and there, but they still need to invest, I think, in, in uh, 
and forward heroes of the pitch. And, yeah, and some... I'm, I'm not quite convinced Diego Costa is going to be doing it too much towards the end he, of the season. He scored with a block. He's, he, <laughs> and he, he has, he was, he was amazing in his last spell in English football. He looks a little bit like a competition winner back at Wolves this season. <laughs> um, uh, listen, I, I didn't really plan to discuss Everton, but I guess I, I might as well mention them after their uh, defeat at home to Fulham 3-1 looking so devoid of confidence um, and energy at home, you kind of thought, oh, they can't muster something more than this at Goodison Park against a Fulham side that hasn't been in great form over the last few games. Um, then what hope have they got? It was uh, a dejecting performance, really. Uh, yeah, it was, it was bad. And in fact, in the past, no matter what's gone on, on the pitch, you could sort of, Sean Dyche will do something that, as a manager, give you hope if it's just the way he talks about the game. Well, he's very, he's a very good manager at just writing a game off. He's the one that makes you believe it. It's all right, we're here. We're going to sort it next time. It was the first time I've seen Sean Dyche post-match look slightly concerned and like, oh my goodness, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, and that's yeah. what, if I was an Everton fan, that would really worry me because as, as if I was an Everton fan, I would have been really happy at his appointment. You know, no nonsense, get stuck in, know what you have to do, add a bit of edge to the team. And there have been elements of that. But this, this performance was, because yes, Fulham were there for the taking because they've, you know, they've got nothing to play for really. They're safe, they're happy. They're doing a lot better than anyone thought. They had the manager in the stands looking moody. I mean, it was, and he, oh, I thought he looked worried. Dice. He said, I suppose it's what happens now, how he reacts. And he said that. He said, it's what, you know, how do the players, they don't say, woe me or something, I think he said. Paul Joyce referenced uh, Frank Lampard's kind of reaction when the same thing happened. Because it's what Everton players have done to several managers now. They they have a uplift, they show that they, they are decent players, good players. But then they've got this in their locker, they can go under. And as Dyke said, it was worrying to see them go under. But Frank Lampard said, you know, he's, there was talk about, I think it was of the players' low confidence. And he said, well, there comes a point where it's not about have, have they got the confidence to say, have they got the bollocks to mm-hmm. play? Like, and I don't think that went down very well. <laughs> so Dyke, you know, I think he's treading that line and he, it's how he how he gets the most from, from these, these players until between now and the end of the season, if he can. Because yes, others have failed. Right. Yeah, if he, if he can have now put something together that means they escape relegation, that that will be one of the stories and one of the great managerial tricks of the season. Because I think it's looking like the tide's against him now. Yeah, huge game at Crystal Palace next up uh, for Everton. Um, it's going to be very tough for them between the end of the season. We didn't really talk about Southampton, but was that the fixture that you kind of you know felt that was it? Bring back Hassanoodle. Who? who <laughs> I mean, don't most people think if he was still there, they might be in with a chance? Yeah. I'm not saying they'd be mid-table, but I think they wouldn't be quite so cut adrift. Yeah, I totally agree. Because he was one of those managers who would get it wrong by getting it right, and they'd get trounced. But, you know, the players seemed to like him a lot, and most of the players seemed to like him a lot, and he'd, he'd, get, a, he'd, he'd get a reaction. So I think if he was still there, you'd be getting a win, draw, loss, loss, win, draw. That's what you'd be getting. Two so win, this unrelenting... Two wins, two wins and a draw and three defeats every six matches, basically. Yeah. Not in that order, just, you know, yeah. roughly getting yeah. enough. Yeah. And certainly his sta- his stats are better than the current yeah. stats. So They play Forest, they play Bournemouth after Arsenal. They're obviously 
must wins basically and they've got some tough games they've got Liverpool, Brighton Newcastle and Arsenal as I said so yeah it's looking tough for them but if they don't win those two games against the teams of them then they're doomed yeah Leeds were spared the relegation chat they take on Liverpool a little bit later who were also spared the relegation chat but of course we're going to react <laughs> alright okay I was only trying to wind you up um, we'll react to the Champions League football big games for Manchester City and of course Chelsea we'll see what Frank Lampard can muster in the second leg against Real Madrid we'll react to all of that on Thursday so thank you for being with me at Tom Roddy Gregor Robertson and Alison Rudd thank you all for listening make sure you check out the game today it's Monday of course uh, pick up a paper. You can also go online, thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game, or make sure you download the Times app. We'll see you soon. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday.